Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Lakandu by Edward Lucas White It stands to reason, said Toombley, that a man must accept of his own eyes, and when eyes and ears agree, there can be no doubt. He has to believe what he has both seen and heard. Not always, put in Singleton, softly. Every man turned towards Singleton. Toombley was standing on hearthrug, his back to the grate, his legs spread out, with his habitual air of dominating the room. Singleton, as usual, was as much as possible effaced in a corner, but when Singleton spoke, he said something. We faced him in that flattering spontaneity of expectant silence which invites utterance. "'I was thinking,' he said, after an interval, "'of something I both saw and heard in Africa. Now, if there was one thing we had found impossible, it had been to elicit from Singleton anything definite about his African experiences. As with the alpinist in the story, who could tell only that he went up and came down, the sum of Singleton's revelations had been that he went there and came away. His words now riveted our attention at once. Toombley faded from the hearthrug, but not one of us could ever recall having seen him go. The room readjusted itself, focused on Singleton, and there was some hasty and furtive lighting of fresh cigars. Singleton lit one also, but it went out immediately, and he never relit it. CHAPTER One. We were in the great forest, exploring for pygmies. Van Ryten had a theory that the dwarfs found by Stanley and others were a mere crossbreed between ordinary negroes and the real pygmies. He hoped to discover a race of men three feet tall at most, or shorter. We had found no trace of any such beings. Natives were few, game scarce, food, except game, there was none, and the deepest, dankest, drippingest forest all about. We were the only novelty in the country. No native we met had ever seen a white man before. Most had never heard of white men. All of a sudden, late one afternoon, there came into our camp an Englishman— and pretty well used up he was, too. We had heard no rumour of him. He had not only heard of us, but had made an amazing five-day march to reach us. His guide and two bearers were nearly as done up as he. Even though he was in tatters and had five days' beard on, you could see he was naturally dapper and neat, and the sort of man to shave daily. He was small but wiry. His face was the sort of British face from which emotion has been so carefully banished that a foreigner is apt to think the wearer of the face incapable of any sort of feeling, the kind of face which, if it has any expression at all, expresses principally the resolution to go through the world decorously, without intruding upon or annoying anyone. His name was Etchem. He introduced himself modestly, and ate with us so deliberately, that we should never have suspected, if our bearers had not had it from his bearers, that he had had but three meals in the five days, and those small. After we had lit up, he told us why he had come. "'My chief is very seedy,' he said between puffs. "'He's bound to go out if he keeps this way. I thought perhaps—' He spoke quietly, in a soft, even tone, but I could see little beads of sweat oozing out on his upper lip under his stubby moustache, and there was a tingle of repressed emotion in his tone— a veiled eagerness in his eye, 
a palpitating inward solicitude in his demeanour that moved me at once. Van Ryten had no sentiment in him. If he was moved, he did not show it. But he listened. I was surprised at that. He was just the man to refuse at once. But he listened to Etchem's halting, difficult hints. He even asked questions. Who is your chief? Stone, Etchem lisped. That electrified both of us. Ralph Stone? We ejaculated together. Etchem nodded. For some minutes Van Ryten and I were silent. Van Ryten had never seen him, but I had been a classmate of Stone's, and Van Ryten and I had discussed him over many a campfire. We had heard of him two years before, south of Luebo in the Belanda country, which had been ringing with his theatrical strife against a Belanda witch-doctor, ending in the sorcerer's complete discomfiture, and the abasement of his tribe before Stone. They had even broken the fetish man's whistle, and given Stone the pieces. It had been like the triumph of Elijah over the prophets of Baal, only more real to the Belanda. We had thought of Stone as far off, if still in Africa at all, and here he turned up ahead of us, and probably forestalling our quest. CHAPTER Two. Etchem's naming of Stone brought back to us all his tantalizing story, his fascinating parents, their tragic death, the brilliance of his college days, the dazzle of his millions, the promise of his young manhood, his wide notoriety, so nearly real fame, his romantic elopement with a meteoric authoress whose sudden cascade of fiction had made her so great a name, so young, whose beauty and charm were so much heralded, the frightful scandal of the breach of promise suit that followed, his bride's devotion through it all, their sudden quarrel after it was all over, their divorce, the too-much-advertised announcement of his approaching marriage to the plaintiff in the breach of promise suit, his precipitate remarriage to his divorced bride, their second quarrel and second divorce, his departure from his native land, his advent in the dark continent. The sense of all this rushed over me, and I believe Van Ryten felt it too, as he sat silent. Then he asked, "'Where is Werner?' "'Dead,' said Etchem. "'He died before I joined Stone. You were not with Stone above Luebo? "'No. I joined him at Stanley Falls. Who is with him? Only his Zanzibar servants and the bearers. What sort of bearers? Mangbatu men,' Etchem responded simply. Now, that impressed both Van Ryten and myself greatly. It bore out Stone's reputation as a notable leader of men.' For up to that time no one had been able to use Mangbatu as bearers outside of their own country, or to hold them for long or difficult expeditions. "'Were you long among the Mangbatu?' was Van Ryten's next question. "'Some weeks,' said Etchem. Stone was interested in them, and made up a fair-sized vocabulary of their words and phrases. He had a theory that they're an offshoot of the Belanda, and he found much confirmation in their customs. "'What do you live on?' Van Ryten inquired. "'Game, mostly.' How long has Stone been laid up? More than a month. And you've been hunting for the camp? Etchem's face, burnt and flayed as it was, showed a flush. I miss some easy shots, he admitted ruefully. I've not felt very fit myself. What's the matter with your chief? Something like carbuncles. He ought to get over a carbuncle or two. They are not carbuncles, nor one or two. He has had dozens, sometimes five at once. If they had been carbuncles, you would have been dead long ago, but in some ways they are not so bad, though in others they are worse. How do you mean? 
Well, they do not seem to inflame so deep nor so wide as carbuncles, nor to be so painful, nor to cause so much fever. But then they seem to be part of a disease that affects his mind. He let me help him dress the first, but the others he has hidden most carefully, from me and from the men. He keeps his tent when they puff up, and will not let me change the dressings, or be with him at all. Have you plenty of dressings? We have some, but he won't use them. He washes out the dressings, and uses them over and over. How is he treating the swellings? He slices them off, clean down to flesh level, with his razor. What? Etchum made no answer, but looked him steadily in the eyes. I beg pardon, Van Ryten hastened to say. You startled me. They can't be carbuncles. He'd have been dead long ago. I thought I had said they're not carbuncles. But but the man must be crazy. Just so. He's beyond my advice or control. How many has he treated that way? Two, to my knowledge. Two? Etchum flushed again. I saw him he confessed, through a crack in the hut. I felt impelled to keep a watch on him, as if he was not responsible. I should think not. And you saw him do that twice? I conjecture that he did the like with all the rest. How many has he had? Dozens. Does he eat? Like a wolf, more than any two bears. Can he walk? He crawls a bit, groaning. Little fever, you say. Enough and too much. Has he been— delirious. Only twice. Once when the first swelling broke, and once later. He would not let anyone come near him then, but we could hear him talking, talking steadily, and it scared the natives. Was he talking their patter in delirium? No, but he was talking some similar lingo. Ahmed Burgash said he was talking Belunda. I know too little Belunda. I do not learn languages readily. Stone learned more Mangbatu in a week than I could have learned in a year but I seem to hear words like Mangbatu words. Anyhow, the Mangbatu bearers were scared. Scared? So were the Zanzibar men, even Ahmed Burgash, and so was I, only for a different reason. He talked in two voices. In two voices, Van Ryten reflected. Yes, said Etchum, more excitedly than he had yet spoken. In two voices, like a conversation— one was his own, one a small, thin, bleaty voice like nothing I ever heard. I seemed to make out, among the sounds the deep voice made, something like Mangbatu words I knew as Nidru, Metababa, and Nido, their terms for head, shoulder, thigh, and perhaps Kudra and Nakeri, speak and whistle, and among the noises of the shrill voice, Matamipa, Angunzi, and Kamamami, kill, death, and hate. Ahmed Burgash said he also heard those words. He knew Mangbatu far better than I. What did the bearers say? Van Ryten asked. They said, Lukandu. I did not know the word. Ahmed Burgash said it was Mangbatu for leopard. It's Mangbatu for witchcraft, said Van Ryten. I don't wonder they thought so. It was enough to make one believe in sorcery to listen to those two voices. One voice answering the other— Van Ryten asked perfunctorily. Etchum's face went grey under his tan. Sometimes both at once, he answered huskily. Both at once? It sounded that way to the men, too, and that was not all. He stopped and looked helplessly at us for a moment. Could a man talk and whistle at the same time? How do you mean? We could hear Stone talking away, his big, deep-cheated baritone rumbling along and 
Through it all we could hear a high, shrill whistle, the oddest, wheezy sound. You know, no matter how shrilly a grown man may whistle, the note has a different quality from the whistle of a boy or a woman or a little girl. They sound more treble somehow. Well, if you can imagine the smallest girl who could whistle keeping it up tunelessly right along, that whistle was like that, only even more piercing, and it sounded right through Stone's bass tones. And you didn't go to him? He is not given to threats. But he had threatened, not volubly, nor like a sick man, but quietly and firmly, that if any man of us—he lumped me in with the men—came near him while he was in his trouble, that man should die. And it was not so much his words as his manner. It was like a monarch commanding respected privacy for a deathbed. One simply could not transgress. "'I see,' said Van Ryten shortly. "'He's very seedy,' Etchum repeated helplessly. "'I thought, perhaps—' His absorbing affection for Stone, his real love for him, shone out through his envelope of conventional training. Worship of Stone was plainly his master passion. Like many competent men, Van Ryten had a streak of hard selfishness in him. It came to the surface, then. He said we carried our lives in our hands from day to day just as genuinely as Stone, that he did not forget the ties of blood and calling between any two explorers but that there was no sense in imperiling one party for a very problematical benefit to a man probably beyond any help, that it was enough of a task to hunt for one party, that if two were united, providing food would be more than doubly difficult, that the risk of starvation was too great. Deflecting our march seven full days' journey—he complimented Etchum on his marching powers—might ruin our expedition entirely. CHAPTER Three. Van Ryten had logic on his side, and he had a way with him. Etchum sat there, apologetic and deferential, like a fourth-form schoolboy before a headmaster. Van Ryten wound up. I'm after pygmies at the risk of my life. After pygmies I go. Perhaps, then, these will interest you, said Etchum, very quietly. He took two objects out of the side-pocket of his blouse and handed them to Van Ryten. They were round, bigger than big plums, and smaller than small peaches, about the right size to enclose in an average hand. They were black, and at first I did not see what they were. "'Pygmies!' Van Ryten exclaimed. "'Pygmies, indeed! Why, they wouldn't be two feet high! Do you mean to claim that these are adult heads?' "'I claim nothing,' Etchum answered evenly. "'You can see for yourself.' Van Ryten passed one of the heads to me. The sun was just setting, and I examined it closely. A dried head it was, perfectly preserved, and the flesh as hard as Argentine jerked beef. A bit of a vertebra stuck out where the muscles of the vanished neck had shriveled into folds. The puny chin was sharp on a projecting jaw, the minute teeth white and even between the retracted lips. The tiny nose was flat, the little forehead retreating— there were inconsiderable clumps of stunted wool on the Lilliputian cranium. There was nothing babyish, childish, or youthful about the head. Rather, it was mature to senility. Where did these come from? Van Ryten inquired. I do not know, Etchum replied precisely. I found them among Stone's effects, while rummaging for medicines or drugs or anything that could help me to help him. I do not know where he got them but I'll swear he did not have them when we entered this district. Are you sure? Van Ryten queried, his eyes big and fixed on Etchum's. Very sure. 
But how could he have come by them without your knowledge? Sometimes we were apart ten days at a time hunting. Stone is not a talking man. He gave me no account of his doings, and Ahmed Burgash keeps a still tongue and a tight hold on the men. You have examined these heads? Minutely. Van Ryten took out his notebook. He was a methodical chap. He tore out a leaf, folded it, and divided it equally into three pieces. He gave one to me and one to Etchum. Just for a test of my impressions, he said, I want each of us to write separately just what he is most reminded of by these heads. Then I want to compare the writings. I handed Etchum a pencil, and he wrote. Then he handed the pencil back to me, and I wrote. Read the three, said Van Ryten, handing me his piece. Van Ryten had written, An old Belanda witch-doctor. Etchum had written, An old Mangbatu fetish man. I had written, An old Katongo magician. There! Van Ryten exclaimed. Look at that! There is nothing Wagabi or Batwa or Wambatu or Wabotu about these heads, nor anything pygmy either. I thought as much, said Etchum. And you say he did not have them before? To a certainty he did not. It is worth following up, said Van Ryten. I'll go with you, and first of all, I'll do my best to save Stone. He put out his hand, and Etchum clasped it silently. He was grateful all over. CHAPTER Four. Nothing but Etchum's fever of solicitude could have taken him in five days over the track. It took him eight days to retrace with full knowledge of it, and our party to help. We could not have done it in seven. And Etchum urged us on, in a repressed fury of anxiety, no mere fever of duty to his chief, but a real ardour of devotion, a glow of personal adoration for Stone which blazed under his dry conventional exterior, and showed in spite of him. We found Stone well cared for. Etchum had seen to a good high-thorns arib around the camp, the huts were well built and thatched, and Stone's was as good as their resources would permit. Ahmed Burgash was not named after two Saeeds for nothing. He had in him the making of a sultan. He had kept the Mangbatu together, not a man had slipped off, and he had kept them in order. Also, he was a deft nurse, and a faithful servant. The two other Zanzibaris had done some creditable hunting. Though all were hungry, the camp was far from starvation. Stone was on a canvas cot, and there was a sort of collapsible camp-stool table, like a Turkish tabouret, by the cot. It had a water-bottle and some vials on it, and Stone's watch, also his razor in its case. Stone was clean and not emaciated, but he was far gone. Not unconscious, but in a daze, past commanding or resisting anyone. He did not seem to see us enter, or to know we were there. I should have recognized him anywhere. His boyish dash and grace had vanished utterly, of course. But his head was even more leonine. His hair was still abundant, yellow and wavy. The close, crisp, blond beard he had grown during his illness did not alter him. He was big and big-cheated yet. His eyes were dull, and he mumbled and babbled mere meaningless syllables, not words. Hatcham helped Van Ryten to uncover him, and look him over. He was in good muscle for a man so long bedridden. There were no scars on him except about his knees, shoulders, and chest. On each knee and above it, he had a full score of roundish cicatrices, and a dozen or more on each shoulder, all in front. Two or three were open wounds, and four or five barely healed. He had no fresh swellings, except two, one on each side on his pectoral muscles, the one on the left being higher up and farther out than the other. 
They did not look like boils or carbuncles, but as if something blunt and hard were being pushed up through the fairly healthy flesh and skin, not much inflamed. "'I should not lance those,' said Van Ryten, and Etcham assented. They made Stone as comfortable as they could, and just before sunset we looked in at him again. He was lying on his back, and his chest showed big and massive yet, but he lay as if in a stupor. We left Etchem with him, and went into the next hut, which Etchem had resigned to us. The jungle noises were no different than anywhere else for months past, and I was soon fast asleep. CHAPTER FIVE Sometime in the pitch dark I found myself awake and listening. I could hear two voices, one Stone's, the other sibilant and wheezy. I knew Stone's voice after all the years that had passed since I heard it last. The other was like nothing I remembered. It had less volume than the wail of a newborn baby, yet there was an insistent carrying power to it, like the shrilling of an insect. As I listened, I heard Van Ryten breathing near me in the dark. Then he heard me and realized that I was listening too. Like Etchem, I knew little Belunder, but I could make out a word or two. The voices alternated, with intervals of silence between. And suddenly both sounded at once and fast. Stone's baritone basso, full as if he were in perfect health, and that incredibly stridulous falsetto, both jabbering at once like the voices of two people quarrelling and trying to talk each other down. "'I can't stand this,' said Van Ryten. "'Let's have a look at him.' He had one of those cylindrical electric night candles. He fumbled about for it, touched the button, and beckoned me to come with him. Outside the hut, he motioned me to stand still, and instinctively turned off the light, as if seeing made listening difficult. Except for a faint glow from the embers of the bearer's fire, we were in complete darkness. Little starlight struggled through the trees. The river made but a faint murmur. We could hear the two voices together— and then suddenly the creaking voice changed into a razor-edged, slicing whistle, indescribably cutting, continuing right through Stone's grumbling torrent of croaking words. "'Good God!' exclaimed Van Ryten. Abruptly he turned on the light. We found Etchem utterly asleep, exhausted by his long anxiety and the exertions of his phenomenal march, and relaxed completely, now that the load was in a sense shifted from his shoulders— the Van Ryten's. Even the light on his face did not wake him. The whistle had ceased, and the two voices now sounded together. Both came from Stone's cot, where the concentrated white ray showed him lying just as we had left him, except that he had tossed his arms above his head and had torn the coverings and bandages from his chest. The swelling on his right breast had broken. Van Ryten named the centre-line of the light at it, and we saw it plainly. From his flesh, grown out of it, there protruded a head, such a head as the dried specimens Etchem had shown us, as if it were a miniature of the head of a Belunder fetish man. It was black, shining black as the blackest African skin. It rolled the whites of its wicked wee eyes, and showed its microscopic teeth between lips repulsively negroid in their red fullness, even in so diminutive a face. It had crisp, fuzzy wool on its minikin skull. It turned malignantly from side to side, and chittered incessantly in that inconceivable falsetto. Stone babbled brokenly against its patter. 
Van Ryten turned from stone and waked Etchum with some difficulty. When he was awake and saw it all, Etchum stared and said not one word. You saw him slice off two swellings? Van Ryten asked. Etchum nodded chokingly. Did he bleed much? Very little. You hold his arms. He took up Stone's razor and handed me the light. Stone showed no sign of seeing the light or of knowing we were there, but the little head mewled and screeched at us. Van Ryten's hand was steady, and the sweep of the razor even and true. Stone bled amazingly little, and Van Ryten dressed the wound as if it had been a bruise or scrape. Stone had stopped talking the instant the excrescent head was severed. Van Ryten did all that could be done for Stone, and then fairly grabbed the light from me. Snatching up a gun, he scanned the ground by the cot and brought the butt down once and twice, viciously. We went back to our hut, but I doubt if I slept. Chapter 6 Next day, near noon, in broad daylight, we heard the two voices from Stone's hut. We found Etchum dropped asleep by his charge. The swelling on the left had broken, and just such another head was there, mewling and spluttering. Etchum woke up, and the three of us stood there and glared. Stone interjected hoarse vocables into the tinkling gurgle of the portent's utterance. Van Ryten stepped forward, took up Stone's razor, and knelt down by the cot. The atomy of a head squealed a wheezy snarl at him. Then suddenly Stone spoke English. Who are you with my razor? Van Ryten started back and stood up. Stone's eyes were clear now and bright. They roved about the hut. The end, he said. I recognize the end. I seem to see Etchum, as if in life, but Singleton, ah, Singleton, ghosts of my boyhood come to watch me pass, and you, strange spectre with the black beard and my razor, are all. I'm no ghost, Stone, I managed to say. I'm alive. So are Etchum and Van Ryten. We're here to help you. Van Ryten, he exclaimed. My work passes on to a better man. Luck go with you, Van Ryten. Van Ryten went nearer to him. Just hold still a moment, old man, he said soothingly. It will be only one twinge. I've held still for many such twinges, Stone answered quite distinctly. Let me be. Let me die in my own way. The Hydra was nothing to this. You can cut off ten, a hundred, a thousand heads, but the curse you cannot cut off, or take off. What's soaked into the bone won't come out of the flesh, any more than what's bred there. Don't hack me any more. Promise. His voice had all the old commanding tone of his boyhood, and it swayed Van Ryten as it always had swayed everybody. I promise, said Van Ryten. Almost as he said the word, Stone's eyes filmed again. Then we three sat about Stone and watched that hideous, gibbering prodigy grow up out of Stone's flesh, till two horrid, spindling little black arms disengaged themselves. The infinitesimal nails were perfect to the barely perceptible moon at the quick. The pink spot on the palm was horridly natural. These arms gesticulated, and the right plucked towards Stone's blonde beard. "'I can't stand this!' Van Wright exclaimed and took up the razor again. Instantly Stone's eyes opened, hard and glittering. "'Van Ryten break his word?' he enunciated slowly. "'Never! But we must help you! I am past all help and all hurting. This is my hour. 
This curse is not put on me. It grew out of me like this horror here. Even now I go. His eyes closed, and we stood helpless, the adherent figure spouting shrill sentences. In a moment, Stone spoke again. You speak all tongues? he asked quickly. And the merchant Minikin replied in sudden English. Yeah, verily all that you speak putting out its microscopic tongue, writhing its lips and wagging its head from side to side. We could see the thready ribs on its exiguous flanks heave, as if the thing breathed. "'Has she forgiven me?' Stone asked in a muffled strangle. "'Not while the moss hangs from the cypresses. Not while the stars shine on Lake Pontchartrain will she forgive.' And then Stone, all with one motion, wrenched himself over on his side— the next instant, he was dead. When Singleton's voice ceased, the room was hushed for space. We could hear each other breathing. To Wombly, the tactless, broke the silence. I presume, he said, you cut off the little minikin and brought it home in alcohol. Singleton turned on him a stern countenance. We buried stone, he said, unmutilated as he died. But, said the unconscionable to Wombly, the whole thing is incredible. Singleton stiffened. I did not expect you to believe it, he said. I began by saying that although I heard and saw it, when I look back on it, I cannot credit it myself. <laughs>